This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, I'm Claire Brindis, and I'm the director of the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies at the University of California, San Francisco. And I'm thrilled that Dr. Drew Altman is joining us today for a conversation on health policy topics. Dr. Altman is the founder-director of the Kaiser Family Foundation, as well as the Kaiser Health News, which were established 10 years ago. Um, He has been at the forefront of innovative health policy analysis, journalism, polling of the American public, and his real fingertips on the issues that are of concern to the American public and to policymakers. He is seen as an innovator and a deeply respected source of information for policymakers on both sides of the aisle. Dr. Allman has also built his career on a number of unique experiences. He served as commissioner for the Department of Health Services, of Human Services, and in the state of New Jersey, he was vice president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and he also served under the Carter administration. Dr. Altman brings a tremendous amount of theoretical strength to his analysis as he earned a PhD in political science at MIT and also conducted postdoctoral work at Harvard. He's also a member of the Institute of Medicine. So I'm really delighted to welcome Dr. Altman. Clearly, welcome. You know, I do a lot of stuff, but I couldn't be more pleased to be here. You may not know this, but Phil Lee was an early member of my board when we built our organization. So I have secret special ties to you that you don't know about. And we've just recently moved our headquarters to San Francisco, and so now we're neighbors and we're right. developing. We're thrilled that you're in the neighborhood. That's right. And we look for, forward to a lot of collaborative relationships. These new relationships. So we're just getting started. Exactly. Kaiser Family uh, Foundation and yourself and Kaiser Health News was very actively involved in analyzing trends around the 2018 election, before Mm -hmm. and after. So I'm wondering if you could share a little bit of the insights you got from this last election and the role that health played in that election. So we saw something in this election that I know it feels to everybody, I'm sure it feels to everybody, like our issue is always such a big deal because we work on it and it's such a hot issue all the time, has been uh, even back uh, when we started our organization in the early 90s with the Clinton health reform. But actually, we saw something in this election we had never seen before. Health was the number one issue in the election. We've actually never seen that before. Mm. So that's a big deal. Um, It happened because of the debate about repeal and replace, and the American people, and particularly Democrats, developed a sense that they actually had something to lose. Uh, And so they became more passionate about health and more concerned about health. And the issue that came to galvanize public opinion and voters in particular, as everyone I think noticed, was the issue of pre-existing conditions. Because so many Americans have someone in their family who may be sick, became worried about what might happen to protections for people with pre-existing conditions. So that was the galvanizing issue. There's one big caveat. Uh, to all of this, and that is that the top issue isn't necessarily the driving factor in an election. Uh, We know this from research, but it's also just common sense. So 
when we asked people not what was the top issue, but what was the driving factor in your vote, it usually isn't an issue. Uh, in this case, health care is an issue. It's the candidate themselves and how I feel about the candidate. In this election, it was President Trump. This was obviously, to a substantial degree, a referendum on how people feel about President Trump and its party. People vote their party. So um, a useful rule to keep in mind, this takes me all the way back to my days as a political scientist, is top issue does not equal top factor when it comes mm -hmm. to people actually voting, even though our issue was, for the first time ever, the top <laughs> issue in this election. Wow. So now that we have this uh, diverse uh, composition of our House mm -hmm. of Representatives, mm -hmm. we have Nancy Pelosi mm -hmm. back in power, mm -hmm. how, how are these uh, factors, do you think, going to impact the next several years, as it, turns, as it relates to health or other social aspects. Of well, health. first of all, I think the election of so many more women and a more diverse Congress and more diverse House is a very big deal. Mm -hmm. And none of us can predict exactly what that means, but it has to mean something for health. I mean, I would venture to say that more women and a more diverse Congress and House will mean more attention to health care issues, more attention to reproductive health issues, there are new leaders of committees who are very focused on those issues. So just that itself will mean something. Uh, not all of the newly elected women are progressive. Some are moderates. And we will see that broader issue play out in a big way uh, in the House, which uh, Nancy Pelosi now leads. And so we'll see this drama play out on the Democratic side between the progressives and the moderates, and caught up in that will be the um, dance around Medicare for all and single payer, how much emphasis to place on that, how much emphasis to place on strengthening and building on the ACA, um, how much to go big, or rather whether to go uh, small uh, mm -hmm. and just uh, build on... Uh, the Affordable Care Act. So all this will play out now in the 2020 campaign in the House, but also with the Democratic candidates for president, who will not be controlled by anyone, that they will scatter and take all kinds of positions on all these issues. So the thing to think about now is, and the thing to watch, is what policy positions, what legislative proposals stick as we move towards 2020, because that will then not much is going to happen in a divided Congress now, mm -hmm. but that will then frame what the agenda is, depending on who is elected after 2020. Right. So you mentioned uh, single payer, mm -hmm. and there's been a lot of conversation about Medicare for all, mm -hmm. and there's been a lot of movement here in our state of California mm -hmm. around this issue. Mm -hmm. If you looked at your crystal ball, what, what do you think is going to happen with that? Where, is there going to be continued action on this area, or... It's Will it be, be more state, federal? There's going to be continued debate about it. It's an idea now that it has more power than it ever has. We see in our polls a new poll we have out just today that's in the news. Mm -hmm. um, more support for the idea of Medicare for All than we have ever seen, but also support for a variety of other uh, smaller ways to expand public coverage or mm -hmm. buy into the Medicaid program or somewhat more incremental ideas, allowing people who are 50 to 64 years old to buy into the Medicare program. Mm -hmm. So we're about to have this debate. I don't think anything will happen in the short term, 
But I personally believe it's a very good thing that we're about to have a bigger debate again about the whole health care system rather than the debate we've been having, which is a debate about the Affordable Care Act mm -hmm. and its marketplaces, which affect a lot of people, but not everyone and not the whole health care system. So this larger debate is a good thing. One more thing that I think is really critical to say about Medicare for All, and that is it is really powerful. We see this in our polling as a concept and as an idea and as a rallying cry, especially for progressives on the left. But we see in our polling that when you give people the talking points that, and the arguments that are made for and against it, opinion moves a lot for and against. So where we are now debating this as an idea is really radically different from where we might be if we ever have a real debate about Medicare for All as a piece of legislation um, with the arguments flying for and against, the trade-offs laid bare, a CBO analysis of what the costs might actually be. Mm -hmm. And so that would be just a very different debate. We can't really predict how that would go because it will depend a lot on who's making the arguments and how effective they are. And it sounds to me also that you're really focused on the communication aspect of public education about what this means because... Again, it seems like it's an issue that has a lot of wave, flags waved around it, but the depth of understanding of what it really means seems fairly... We, all, we always focus a lot uh, in our survey research on what the public knows and doesn't know, what public perceptions are, mm -hmm. um, because they really matter. Uh, so, for example, um, in a poll we released today, uh, we discovered that about 50%, just over 50% of people with private coverage don't know that they would have to change that coverage in a Bernie Sanders-style Medicare for All plan. Not in all the Medicare for All proposals, but in Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All proposals. So that's important to know mm -hmm. politically. There are other proposals uh, that would give people the option of staying with their current coverage or joining a new Medicare for All plan. So understanding what the public knows and doesn't know is, is quite important. And we see some real issues in public knowledge and understanding. Uh, the most troubling example I can recall at the moment, um, you remember the death panel debate yes. in the ACA? Over 40% of the American people still think that there are death panels mm. in the ACA. Of course, there are no death panels in the ACA. Right. And that's just a real, real issue, uh, and so it shows how these um, uh, intense political debates not only can affect uh, public opinion, uh, depending on how the media handles them or doesn't handle them, uh, but can stick and affect um, really our, our possibilities uh, mm -hmm. and what can and can't be done in the country uh, mm -hmm. in the future. So one of the frustrations that I personally have is that we seem to be spending so much money on health care mm -hmm. delivery, and yet our outcomes are really not nothing to brag about. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, we have some of the best medicine that is offered anywhere in the world, and I know many of my friends who are clinicians who are working very hard mm -hmm. within systems, but do you have a sense about how we're going to deal with the issues of cost, given how much it represents as part of our overall country's investments? And then also, how do we really move the needle around improvements in healthcare outcomes? I've been working on this issue of cost my entire career. Uh, it's what got me into health in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's such a frustrating issue. 
we've not made much progress as a country dealing with it. We have no strategy as a country for dealing with um, health care costs effectively. Occasionally, we make an attempt, some little piece of the healthcare system. Uh, it's a very, very frustrating issue. Um, we, uh, so I don't have a great answer for you. Um, the, um, if it was easy, it would have been solved. If it was easy, it would have been solved, and if we were prepared to make the hard decisions that we need to make as a country to deal with it, you know, we might have dealt with it uh, in, in the past. Um, the, there is a fundamental difference, I think, between our country and all the others, even though all those others are different, in that they have a way to control the total resources that go into the system. Those ways differ. You know, Great Britain is really different from Canada, which is different from Switzerland. But they have a way to control the resources or what is spent. And then they leave their health professionals and health care institutions uh, relatively free to function as professionals in the system as compared with us. We are just the opposite. We have a fragmented system, no way to control what we spend in our fragmented system, and we micromanage everything to death. Sometimes that micromanagement comes from government, sometimes it comes from the private sector or an insurance company, and that has not been a recipe for controlling health care costs. We also have many health cost problems, not one health cost problem. There is the problem you alluded to, we're not getting uh, adequate value for our health care dollar and our outcomes are not what they should be. We have the problem that employers are most concerned about their premium increases. We have the problem that Washington is concerned about, which is health spending, largely for Medicare and Medicaid, as a chunk of the federal budget. And then we have the problem I'm most concerned about, which is the struggles that consumers, people, are having today with their health care bills because of their deductibles and their drug costs and their surprise medical bills and their premiums at a time when their wage growth has been relatively flat, which are rippling through their family budgets and have all kinds of consequences for real people, the pocketbook issues and the consumer issues for people, which we aren't even talking about much. Uh, and those problems are the worst for people who are sick. So today, just to throw out one number, people who are sick and might have cancer or heart disease or diabetes or whatever illness you choose, more than 50% of those people, people with an illness, are having a serious problem today paying their medical bills. With the makes it harder for them to pay the rent or the mortgage or to buy food uh, or to pay for their cost to get to work. And that, uh, I think, has become almost a crisis that we don't even talk about very much in our country. So it isn't one cost problem to me, it's many cost problems. Mm -hmm. One of the major ones that has been touted in the recent months has been, and once again, because this has been a topic area that's been discussed a long time, which is really around drug costs mm -hmm. and whether Medicare should be negotiating better prices. Mm -hmm. and, and I recently saw, you know, um, Americans going to Canada so mm -hmm. they can get cheaper drugs. And the concerns are not just about the big, uh, costly new drugs and new drug development, but even how it's affecting a drug like insulin, which is so commonly used mm -hmm. in our country. Do you have some insights about how this drug debate is going to roll out? It's good that everyone's talking about it. Uh, That's a first step. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much I could say beyond that. 
Uh, it's also good that on this issue, because people are so concerned about it, because everyone's talking about it, there is at least some bipartisan movement. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we see legislation co-authored by Senator Grassley, a prominent Republican, Senator Klobuchar, a prominent Democrat who might run for president. That's different, makes this a little different. Will anything actually happen? The drug companies set a record for money spent lobbying last year when not very much was even happening that was threatening to them. Um, the Congress is paralyzed and there are the prospects of things becoming pretty toxic with oversight and whatever happens with the Mueller report. So it's very hard to predict that there'll be movement uh, or legislation in this area in the next year. But there are those who are somewhat optimistic that something could happen just in this one area in healthcare, drugs, and it wouldn't be sweeping, but it might be something. Some things that Phil would always, Phil Lee would always talk about, which was incremental health policy changes mm -hmm. rather than dramatic. Uh, revolutionaries. And these days it would be significant if anything bipartisan could be achieved in health mm -hmm. since um, it's so difficult for the Congress to do uh, anything uh, in health right now. Given that our issue has become almost the poster child of partisan division in the country, um, one consequence of that is a lot of the action that we're seeing is in the states in health. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing the blue states and the red states move in very, very different directions. But there are some really interesting and I would say promising developments in a number of the states. Uh, California, as always, uh, is a leader and has some very ambitious, uh, the new governor, Governor Newsom, has some very ambitious proposals in health. Uh, but so does Washington State and New Mexico and the state where I was once in government, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, so the states really bear watching. And in terms of actions that would actually have tangible impact on people in the short term, uh, probably I would say watch the states, not Washington. Mm -hmm. So it may bubble up if there's some positive experiences at the state level. A absolutely, and it just as things did um, in health reform originally in Massachusetts, and then you know, later some of that experience was embodied in the ACA. Right. So we definitely will have a uh, employment service for health services researchers <laughs> for many years to come. Do we have a vested interest in not solving <laughs> our problem? I don't think so, but I'm hoping that we can come up with some uh, viable alternative solutions. Me too. Now, the, the president has been talking some about Medicaid, and there are, mm -hmm. you know, real also interest in mm -hmm. work requirements is mm -hmm. one aspect mm -hmm. of it. And you're in, in looking in the future, do you think that how, how is Medicaid going to be uh, dealt with in the near future? There is a policy and political debate about Medicaid up here, down here, where people live. It has silently become an incredibly popular program. And that's in part because it now covers almost 75 million Americans. It's a very, very different program. And way more than half of the American people now say that they or a family member or a close friend have uh, been served by the Medicaid program and report that it's mostly been a positive experience for them. So they are now opposed to changing it, cutting it, uh, doing anything to it. And so we see in our polling 
that while not quite up there with the sacrosanct programs like Medicare or Social Security, Medicaid, and this is really surprising to see this in the polling, is not that far behind. Mm -hmm. When you look at what happened in the repeal and replace debate, it wasn't just about the ACA. It was also about the proposals to cut and block grant the Medicaid program. Mm -hmm. And those proposals are part of what caused senators like Senator Collins and Senator Murkowski to jump off the train you know, at that penultimate moment Mm -hmm. uh, when John McCain came in with his famous thumbs down. Mm -hmm. So one thing that's happened with Medicaid is it's actually become quite a popular program because it now reaches deeply and broadly into our society. That was not true 20 years ago. The second thing that's going on with Medicaid is there is a fundamental debate about the program uh, that divides along partisan lines. So you're seeing conservative Republicans view the program as a welfare program, just as another form of cash assistance. And to speak bluntly about it, if you view it as a welfare program, as another form of what used to be called the dole, mm-hmm. then you know you might be willing to cut it, to mutilate it, to spindle it, to require people to do stuff like work or take steps to work to get it. You wouldn't ask somebody with Blue Cross coverage to work mm-hmm. to get their Blue Cross coverage. On the other hand, liberals and Democrats view it just the other way around as just an insurance program for low-income people. And if you view it as an insurance program, then you would want to protect it. You might want to expand it. And Mm -hmm. so you see this fundamental debate playing out, for example, in the uh, uh, current discussion of work requirements and the proposals, and I think now eight states Mm -hmm. are moving forward with work requirements for Medicaid. I want to switch a little bit to talk about social determinants of health. Over the last, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, basically since President Johnson or even before, it's not that uh, social determinants have not been an item or a concern or the role of poverty mm-hmm. in people's lives. And yet we are revisiting, or men- maybe the pendulum is swinging back again to look at the consequences of social determinants of health mm-hmm. on health itself. Mm-hmm and as places where there can be interventions. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to me to see how the Center for Medicaid and Medicare is now really looking at stabilizing housing or mm-hmm. prescriptions for healthy foods. So, you know, again, from your vantage point, when we see the interrelationship between social determinants mm-hmm. and health outcomes, have you seen some movement, and where do you think we're, we're heading? This is a great development. Um, I'm not sure where we're heading. It's somewhat ironic to see a conservative Republican administration embracing these changes, which previously Democratic administrations (laughs) would not embrace. But we're talking about relatively modest changes in Medicaid coverage and policy. Really what's important is um, understanding that behind all of these issues we're working on are uh, the issues we work on when we, when we work on programs like Medicaid or CHIP uh, or Title X are issues of poverty and race. And finally, the healthcare system is coming to grips with that and recognizing that. And you know, we're beginning to do it in, in small ways. Those of us who were once welfare commissioners, it's kind of welcome to the party, but um, <laughs> it's all entirely good. And um, and certainly the major healthcare institutions have 
important roles to play in their communities and can do a better job of playing that role. And for me, that's always been a place to start. You know, whether it's UCSF here or it's Hopkins in Baltimore or any of the major institutions, mm -hmm. they, they can, uh, many have, have done a lot, but they can do a lot more than they have done um, as citizens in their urban communities. Right. And that they have a responsibility. Absolutely. For example, UCSF, we're the second largest employer in the city with about 30,000 individuals, and we have to be responsible for even the people who work for us right. or with us. So these problems really are very intersectorial and will require a village of different agencies working in a very different kind of way than we have perhaps in the past. Yeah, and I think, th I think there's a new awareness and a new willingness. When mm -hmm. I was a human services commissioner, I couldn't get the healthcare institutions to even talk to me mm -hmm. about poverty and housing, uh, and most of all, and jobs and employment. Uh, I think that's changing. It has mm -hmm. changed. Well, and I think, again, maybe one of the repercussions or the residuals of the ACA has been that as we become, we, the health system, mm -hmm. becomes more responsible for a group of patients and their outcomes mm -hmm. and are beginning to understand the role of social isolation or unstable housing as something that is actually going to cost our health care system even more. So the incentives are not as perverse as they are in some other areas. Yeah. Of healthcare. I think also the consequences of the struggles people are having with the, the, the affordability of their health care, the problems they're having just paying their health care bills, especially sick people, that affects their health too. Mm -hmm. You know, right. when you can't pay the rent and you can't pay the mortgage and you're borrowing money and you're taking a second job or you're taking a third job and it's because of your health care costs, that turns around again and affects your mental health, your health, the health of your family. Right. Um, so we're seeing that as well. Mm -hmm. So I really have loved this opportunity to speak with you. And I'm, I have one more question that I'd like to ask you, which is, this is sort of an open question about you sharing with us. What, what, what's like the most important concern on your mind? You've spoken already about the runaway costs yeah. and the impact on many, many individuals. Mm -hmm. um, are there any other aspects that are very much on your mind? Well, a couple. Uh, I'm deeply concerned about... Uh, all of us focusing more on how people's health care costs are affecting their lives. I think as a field we've been more focused on access and not focused enough. Uh, and, and now, you know, we're at 90% coverage of the population and not focused enough on how people's out-of-pocket costs are, are, are affecting their lives and we should focus more on these pocketbook issues, not only access to care, which many of us have devoted our careers to. Right. Um, and second, I think we all have to focus in this environment uh, harder on making sure that facts and evidence and really the truth you know, matters as much as it can matter uh, in an environment where it is difficult to make it matter. So we are an organization which, you know, we tried to set ourselves up to be an independent source of information, trying to be a voice for people through information, whether it is under one roof, uh, the policy analysis or the polling or the journalism. Um, and it is a struggle 
but we think it's critically important. And I think that's an enterprise we're all involved in. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really a critical time for that. Mm-hmm. Particularly now when we see the impact of social media and the ways that the American public were man- manipulated and um, mm-hmm. you know, the good and the bad of having such rapid 24-7 plus yep. uh, access to news and at the same time helping the yep. public figure out what is newsworthy and what is The evidence. public and policymakers, and the, you know, we are the news media at our organization too, but the news media generally. And, but I don't think we should despair. I, I actually think the ACA debate would not have gone the way it went without good analysis and facts. I never thought I would wake up uh, in my life and see a CBO report on the front page of every newspaper in America previously. That was CBO reports were something that were you know read only by people like us, um, but it was and it had an impact and so did other kinds of analysis, including analysis we did. But you have to keep at it. You have to keep at it. You have to keep at it. And it's just the time when that's critically important. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're it's been really delightful. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.